Amen. There indeed, there is a war for our souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this gorgeous day. We thank you that you're good, that you're God, that you're in control of all things, and that you have a heart and a desire to have a relationship with us that's based on love. And so I thank you, Father, for giving us your word, giving us your spirit, giving us your son, giving us, Lord God, the promises of life eternal and salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that those are things we could not own. We cannot earn them. We cannot deserve them only receive them as you give them. So, so, Father, I pray that you open our eyes today and our ears to hear and understand truly what the gospel of good news and the gospel of grace is all about and the prayers that we pray to break the curses of um, idolatry, mixing and mingling the, the, uh, the gospel of grace with the gospel of be good, and that you give us grace now to understand these concepts, Father God, and uh, wisdom. I bind the powers of darkness that would try to cheat snatch, steal, twist, pervert, subdue, stupefy us, Father God, that we become completely uh, alert and aware and activated by your Holy Spirit, anointed to hear and to comprehend, to understand, and to communicate the truth of your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you come as our faithful witness to testify to the truth through your word, through your spirit, and that you lead us now. Amen. Father God, we just also thank you for divine favor and protection that no weapon formed against us will prosper. It seems like I can't even pray without praying that these days because we are in spiritual warfare. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about the, the roots, the foundation of the war, the battle that's going on uh, between God and Satan for the souls of men and talking about the prayers uh, to cancel out the generational agreements that we make with mixing law with grace and I know we don't understand the, it just doesn't seem that like you have to mix a, a prayer, a prayer, a generational uh, prayer uh, to break an agreement with the law when it seems like we've been taught and trained all of our lives to be afraid of breaking the law and that we're supposed to keep the law. And the Old Testament is all full of, you know, examples, prophetic warnings, uh, admonitions, um, for people to keep the law. Deuteronomy is full of, if you will keep my law, then I will bless you. If you don't keep my law, then these curses are going to happen to you. So the consequences of breaking the law are just well established in the word of God. Um, and so it, it's almost like it becomes difficult for us to understand the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where Jesus brings a whole different look at what the law was really meant and intended to do. And so we're going to look at that for a little bit in our kind of uh, introduction to the prayers and then go through the prayers uh, to cancel out the generational agreements with the law. Because what happens is as you actually mix law with grace, um, in Romans 11, there's a set of curses that come that kind of underlie every other curse in your life. All the generational demonic judgments are coming out of mixing law and grace. But let's begin with um, Jesus was the one who brought the the transition. And in uh, John chapter uh, 6, verse uh, 63, well, let's go back a little bit. He says um, he had just talked to them about being the bread of life. Um, you know, he eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. It's a totally, totally different concept than, um, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's like totally different. I mean, and so he's trying to explain to the people, not trying, but he is explaining whether they're getting it or not. He says, so he begins, he, he says, uh, and when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, this is verse 61 of chapter 6, then 62, does this offend you? See, they were offended because they had learned, been trained and taught, as we have, to believe that 
the gospel, uh, the, the way we get to God, the way we make God happy, the way things go well with us is to keep the law. And so he's now giving them a whole different way of salvation, a whole different means of salvation than what they had learned. And so they were becoming confused and some were offended or stumbling. Does this make you to stumble? He said, what then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, is that what it's going to take? Do you have to see me coming up, uh, going up from where I came from before you're going to believe that I have the authority to speak this, to bring this revelation? God wasn't changing the rules. He was now establishing the rules. The new rule was the law was love, and it was fulfilled through forgiveness and through mercy. But he, he says, you know, he says, the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit. They are life. The spirit brings life. In Second Corinthians, we have a kind of a similar, um, you know, Paul brings that element. He brings it, he develops it a little bit further. He says in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse, um, yeah, let's read 5 first. Um, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think anything of, uh, uh, as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So he's starting to say, you know, my goodness, my worth, my value doesn't come from my performance or my being sufficient or capable. It is coming from God. He says, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant? New covenant. So he's being called to be a communicator, a, a disciple maker, a teacher of this new covenant, sufficient. Their strength was coming from God. The anointing, the authority was coming from God. It says, not of the letter, but of the spirit, capital S, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is very similar to what Jesus said. He's, Jesus said the flesh basically, he says the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Uh, Paul says the spirit gives life. The letter kills the letter or the law. So the flesh uh, is similar to the law. The the works of the flesh, the keeping of the commandments was not able to save them. It was only able to indict them and um, uh, give the devil something to work with to to accuse them. So the, the flesh profits nothing. The law, the letter of the law kills. As we can see, we, we see this exampled in... Um, uh, you know, the stories that, that in, the, in the encounters that Jesus had himself in John uh, chapter 8, we see the story of the woman taken in adultery. And here we see that um, there was the, the, the encounter, the conflict between the Pharisees who were trying to keep the law by, you know, the letter of the law says, the letter of the law says, this, you know, anyone, anyone taken in the, in adultery, the act of adultery should be stoned to death. So they were attempting to keep the letter of the law and it would have brought death to this woman. But Jesus was saying, um, okay, go ahead, execute the law. If you are sinless yourself, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So the, they were forced to be taking a moral inventory of themselves, realizing they were not qualified <clears throat> to throw this stone because they also had broken the law. So he was saying, if you want to execute the law, to execute the law, you actually have to become a sinner yourself. 
you have to judge someone else. You have to, um, uh, you know, declare uh, that you're superior. It's it's a it's judging. He also in the in Matthew 12 where they were encountering him again about is it good to is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? Jesus gave them the example of you know that if the the ox or the sheep or whatever fall, had fallen into the pit and they took their their animal out on the Sabbath that they would be guiltless that there wasn't a problem and so they understood that and he says but but you're telling me now that if I do good on the Sabbath that is questionable that's a sin it's like the law when it's carried to its extreme cannot save us and not only does it not save us but it has actually tangles us up in doing the thing that you know indicts us. So Jesus was trying to tell them, I shouldn't say trying, because he did tell them. I don't know if they agreed with it or believed it, because we still have this division today, and it's a huge one, and it's permeated the very churches that we sit in on Sunday mornings, believe you me. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. That means he's come to satisfy and complete the demands of the law. Um, And the law very clearly was not able to save anyone. The works of the law had become the works of the flesh, the legalistic, judgmental, um, you know, things as as we see in Matthew 12. There was a dispute when there should have been no dispute at all. There should be no dispute about doing good on any day, raising the sick on, uh, healing the sick on any day. The man with the withered hand was sitting right in the front of the church, and Jesus stepped up and says, you know, stretch forth your hand right after this discussion, which actually demonstrated his authority to speak so uh confidently on these matters of the, but but they were still held in their old um the old garments the old rags i guess of of the law in 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 a way the law has a purpose in galatians we see that paul is taking a lot of time he's he he's saying who bewitched you who tricked you who set you back you you follow started following out Je- following jesus through the spirit and now you're turning back he says, um, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you to turn that you should not obey the truth. The truth is what? The truth is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to break the curse. Jesus came to pay the price. Jesus came to satisfy the wages of sin, which was the demand was death. Jesus came to lay down his life that we could live. Jesus became a curse for us that we could be free from the curse. Jesus came to set us free actually from the law. Because Romans 4 says, um, where there is no law, there is no transgression. But obviously, where there is a law, then there is transgression. So he came to set us free from the transgressions that would accumulate it and had accumulated against us through the law. Um, he says, "Did uh, let's see, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? The flesh is that uh, where we mind the law. We keep our, we pay attention to what the law says. Of, you know, the the commands, the demands." expectations, and that law could not make them perfect. Obviously, they were continuing to sin year after year. Obviously, they needed an atonement every year in the Old Testament, a sacrifice, a lamb, the Day of Atonement, to purchase for them another year of protection from the demands of Satan. But when Jesus came, he came to fulfill and complete one sacrifice finished for all. It is finished. But he says, he who, he, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Does he do it through the letter of the law or through the hearing of faith, through the faith and the promises of God? The whole New Testament is based on relationship. 
It's based on faith in the promises of God. It's not based on legalism. It's not based on law. It's not based on being good. I think that's where we get really mixed up. We think it's all about being good. And we know, we know. If I'd asked you, how do you get to heaven? By being good or by somebody had to die on the cross for you? We would know the answers, the correct answers, because Jesus died on the cross. Everybody knows that. But we're still striving to be good, to keep the law, to do it right, uh, to make God happy, um, when in fact Jesus fulfilled that law. And there's no way we can be good enough to get to heaven. That's what he, Jesus actually said that when the rich young rulers came and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, there's none good but one. And that's God. Well, stop in your tracks right there, because if there's none good but one, then why would we try so hard to keep the letter of the law, keep all the commandments and be good when there isn't any way you can be good enough to get to heaven? And of course, Satan uses our desire for righteousness and goodness to provoke us, to bait us, to, to entice us, to try to be perfect thinking that's what God is also demanding. That's not what God demands. God knows we're, we're living in a snake pit. He's not here to find fault with us. He's here to save us and deliver us, to cleanse us through the washing of the water of the word. But all this has to come through our, our faith in his promise that he is able to keep us and complete us and save us. The law was given, um, as we read in, going on in Galatians 13, it says, for what purpose then does the law serve? Verse 19, 319. What, why was the law given? What, what's going on here? It just seems like it's been a big stumbling block. It's been a big tool the devil's used to set up transgressions. Um, you know, it messes with the promise. Why was the law given? It says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So this law was given to protect the seed the seed, Jesus Christ, his generations, his people, his bloodline, uh, the people of God, the, 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 the children of God, the Israelites, a- a- Abraham's children, Abraham's seed. Out of his seed would come the seed, Jesus Christ, the head crusher, uh, the one who would die on the cross. But this, So the law was given as a protection for them. It was given as a way to distinguish them. Um, and in that distinguishing, they were protected because as they agreed with and abide, would remain under the law, abide in the law in the Old Testament, Satan had nothing against them. He had no, nothing he could come up against them with in, before the court of heaven and say, God, I have a right to these people because they're listening to me because God made it very clear that his people would be doing certain things. And if his people kept doing those certain things that he commanded, Satan would have no right to lay a claim to them. So therefore, that was how they were protected. It was it was to protect the seed until the promise could come. Um, Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. No, the law is not against the promises. It was, it was to protect the promises. It was to help bring forth, protect them until the promise could be fulfilled. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Okay, so if, I, if there could have been a secret magic formula for getting to heaven by being good and doing certain things, then we could have been saved through that. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith, the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. It's interesting that old King James says faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, and the new King James says faith in Jesus Christ. I believe it's faith of Jesus Christ. The faith of Jesus, his great awesome faith in his father, his great awesome obedience to his father, his great 
uh, knowing that he knew who he was, where he came from, and what he was supposed to be doing. All of his faith is made available to us at the point where we believe in the promises. So the New Testament is built on the promise that God made, the promise of eternal life, promise of salvation, promise of uh, grace, promise of Jesus coming to pay the penalty, and our believing it. That's that's why all the rule in the war between God and Satan is one simple rule. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe God's promise, God's faith, God's goodness, God's word, Jesus? Or are you going to believe the devil and go with what it, what it looks like or what you've experienced or how you feel? Um, it says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. You know, like I said, we were protected, kept for faith, for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. So we were kept in a, in a certain time until that faith, until the fullness of time came, um, we were under the protection. We were raised by this tutor of the law. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was only to bring us to that place. It wasn't the salvation. But when faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Very clear. You're all sons of God, not because of the law, but because of faith in Jesus Christ and baptized in him. And now we're, there's no distinction between the Jew or the Greek or the Gentile. There, there, were, there are no slaves, no free, no male, no female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And, and, and if we're one in Christ, it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God's intention all along, even in the Old Testament where he's talking to, to Abraham, was to bring us to the place of the promise, to bring us to the place of Jesus Christ. And so this was his intention. However, I think we got a little hung up on the way. Um, now, it's very interesting that in Romans, Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul goes back to this subject of salvation and who's going to be saved. And he's talking about his own people who are obviously the masters of keeping the law. And again, this is what we do today. We have mixed the gospel of grace and good news with the gospel of law and good works. Now, you, you, there is a place for good works. Good works are actually the fruit that comes out of the holy root. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is, it goes in Romans 11. He talks about that. This is a tree analogy. It's not a, you know, bricks and mortar and us build this building. It's we are abiding in Jesus Christ. It says, for if the first fruit is holy, that would be Jesus. The lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So we are abiding in Christ Jesus, who is holy and satisfied completely the, the demands of the law and the demands of love in dying for us. And so Paul, in Romans 11, 1, he begins a serious discussion that most of us have never paid any attention to. He says, um, I say then, verse 1, 11, 1, Romans, I say then, as God cast away his people, He's saying, well, what's going to happen now? You know, we've had the law. We've had, you know, now we have grace. What's going on? Is God going to just throw out all these people who were, you know, in the Old Testament? Is God that those that are, he says, certainly not. He says, I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abram of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is good, good, a good start, but it's not going to get me anywhere because now God says, whoever so, so whoever wills, you know, you don't have to be of the tribe of Benjamin or Israelite or anything to get in. You just have to agree with God, accept the good news and, and believe. But in five, verse five, he says, if so, then at this present, even so, then at this present time, 
There is a remnant according to the election of grace. Okay, what does that mean? Election of grace. There is a certain bunch of people, not too many, called a remnant, who have chosen to believe, they've elected to believe in grace. They've elected to believe God's way of salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the completion and is our um, access to the promises of God, eternal life. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer works. So here in verse 6, he's saying, you can't even mix the two. Grace is grace, works is works. If you have them mixed, you've canceled them both out. You've got nothing. You've got neither. He says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, those who believed in the promises, and the rest were hardened. Now notice here, he's very, they're, they're hardened, and he's about to tell us the bad things that are going to happen to people who mix grace with works. He said, well, what about works? Works, as I said a moment ago, are the fruit. They come out of our abiding in Christ. It's a natural expression of the love of God to love others. It's a, when you know you're loved, you're secure in God, naturally out of that's going to come goodness and kindness and mercy and peace and generosity and fearlessness. When, we, when we're of that, that stalk, that stem, that, brand, that, that vine, we cannot help but be what the vine is, and the vine is Jesus Christ. And so it's much simpler than you might think. As we abide in him, hang with him, it takes all the work and stress and strain and pressure out of our lives, but we have to know that we have been forgiven, that we have made the agreement. We have to understand the agreements that we've made because if we don't understand the contract that we're now under, Satan will come and throw a bunch of garbage at us and make us believe we're still obligated to certain things that have already been taken care of and paid for, and we do not owe that debt anymore. So, but he goes on to say, now listen to this. When he gets to the place where he says, okay, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Hardened against what? Hardened against truth. Hardened against the counsel of God. Hardened against love. It says, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. That's bad. Eyes, they can't see, they can't hear, they don't get it, they can't understand to this very day. They're messed up. They're in a stupor, zombified. We have so many believers today who are absolutely in a stupor. Uh, They go into their churches, they receive a mixed gospel, they mix the works, the programs, the, the commandments, the demands, the law, the peer pressure expectations, mix the Old Testament with the New Testament. And these people leave having, you know, confusion, spiritual anxiety, neurosis. It's like serving them oatmeal mixed with gravel. And you eat that and you're going to get a bellyache. That's just, I don't care how much sugar you put on it, you're still going to get a bellyache. You cannot mix law with works. It's, it doesn't work anymore. It's understanding that out of the grace, out of the relationship with Jesus Christ comes the fruits of righteousness, peace, and joy. It's, it's just a, it's a natural thing. It's a spiritual, supernatural working of the Spirit. So God permits them to have a spirit of stupor. He doesn't give them that spirit of stupor because James says he doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted to do evil uh, or to, to uh, put evil upon people. 
It comes from the devil who says to God, I have a right to demand that this spirit of stupor come upon these people because your own word says if they mix law and works, I mean, sorry, which works, which is law, works with grace, then I have a right, then then a stupor is to come upon them. I have a right to bring it. And this is where we have the, the condemnation. Paul says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. To those who walk, those who are in Christ Jesus, in, saved, who walk, okay, you're going to walk after you're in Christ, you're going to walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus said, what do you say about the flesh? The flesh kills. Walking in the flesh, following the flesh. John, again, uh, 6, 63. The flesh, the works of the law, the flesh, all the same thing. Kills brings death, brings discouragement, brings dis, uh, separation. Actually, that's what death is, is separation. He says, but the people are not going to even notice it. God is going to give them, or let Satan, who demands that he get to put this spirit of stupor, God is going to let that happen. So they're going to have eyes that they don't see, ears that they should not hear, to this very day. Now, if you look at what's really going on in the church, and I'm not here to make a big, you know, I'm not here to hack the church today, but I want you to see that the gospels that were the gospels that we receive in church are not bringing forth the fruit of the gospel. We we don't. Jesus said in Matthew um, ten, other places as well. Go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. You know, preach the gospel, cast out demons, freely receive, freely give. Do, go do that. Do we see that really? We see little tiny specks of that maybe in the midst of a whole bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with salvation. But going back to Romans 11, we have this stupor coming upon people. That's one problem. Then David, King David in his psalm, he adds to it, Psalm 69, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. And, And Paul is repeating this same verse in Romans 11, 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap. In the psalm, it says, let their well-being, their, their table be this a snare, a snare to their well-being. Our well-being has to do with our anxiety levels. It has to do with our levels of peace and confidence and security. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. A stumbling block. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their backs always. Doesn't sound very positive, if you ask me. If you look more specifically at what you would do at a table, we, of course, eat food at a table. Well, then eating a food at the table is going to become a snare to us, which it has. All of the food we eat is now so bad and contaminated and GMO'd and pesticided, and it's, it's killing people, literally. And what else do we do at a table? Well, we have conversations and relationships and what are happening with those. They're also become ensnared with witchcraft and rebellion and confusion and divination all over the place. So it's hard to speak to people. It's hard to get through to them. It's hard to have relationships because everybody's offended and upset and whatnot. It's just a snare. And also at a table, we write contracts. And our contracts are also a snare to us because oftentimes they're filled with um, verbiage and fine print and all kinds of things that we weren't counting on. And so they become how many people are snared by the agreements that they've made at their table. So, and our eyes are darkened. We go blind, can't see, spiritually blind. Don't even know that we don't know. Our backs are bowed down. We're depressed. We're despondent. 
um, our loins shake continually. So we're filled with anxiety. So much of what we do is motivated by fear, which exa- uh, manifests as anxiety. And yet people don't realize they're anxious, be anxious for nothing. Um, and s- today, you know, the problem is why we have to confess or cancel out our generational agreements with um, the mixing and mingling of law and grace is because of this very thing. It sets up a snare, a generational curse that Satan can take before the high court of heaven and say, look, I have a right to bring this, you know, health issue, this um, uh, despondency, this anxiety, this depression, this relationship breakdown. I have a right to do it according to your own word, because you said in Romans 11 that if they'd mixed works with grace, this would happen. They've been mixing it. Their preachers have been mixing it. They don't understand it. They're all confused. They're they're, they're feeling condemned because they're walking in the flesh and not the spirit. So, God, I have a right to bring this thing upon your precious little believer. <laughs> this is true. God says, yeah, very. I, I get it. But God wants us to know that if we would be preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ from the pulpits, we would have freedom. But the, the, the preachers are confused. They are afraid. That if you preach the gospel of straight gospel of good news and grace, it's going to open up the floodgates to sin and the attitude that anything goes. I can sin. I can do whatever I want because, you know, I'm going to get forgiven. Everybody's going to heaven. God's not going to throw anybody in hell, blah, 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 blah. So I'm good and I can do whatever I want. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel says there is good news. There is grace. And if you really have the right definition of grace, um, you understand that it's not cheap. It's very expensive. So they mix the law with grace. Like I said, it's just like, you know, feeding somebody oatmeal mixed with gravel. Um, Because why? Well, because this is what they learned. They've learned this, learned it. You know, I'd be very weary, wary of something that you've learned. I'd rather know something than learn it. And you say, well, what's the difference? You know, something that you can be taught, something you learn, and how much of our higher education or seminaries or textbooks are teaching us stuff that we're learning that's not right. Anything you can learn that can be taught to you that can be corrupted. But if you know something as it's God's spirit is bearing witness with your spirit and it's reflecting back to your original download of revelation from God as he made you in his image and you know the truth and you know what's right and you know you resonate with the truth. That's knowing. I didn't learn that. I did not learn how to breathe. I did not learn how to see. I didn't have to go to seeing eye school in order to be able to see. You know, I had to learn how to read, but I didn't have to learn how to see. That's a gift from God. And we don't think about it. We don't put it on our list of things to do today. We just breathe. We just see. We just hear. We just know. We just be. You know, we be those things. And God wants us to know that we can know what we know. And he wants us to know that the definition of grace is not our definition. It's his. Grace is not cheap. It costs the Godhead everything, the blood of Jesus Christ, the second person of what we understand to be the Trinity, shed his blood, and then sent the Holy Spirit to endorse and enforce and lead and guide us into truth and triumph to maintain that victory that was 
executed on the cross. So the price had to be paid. And the price was paid. Um, But it's very interesting that the price that was owed, the gift that, that was given, cannot be earned. It cannot be earned by us. Now, here's very simple. Okay, this is not complicated, people. We think, oh, law, grace, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, what's she talking about? Listen to this. Grace. This is paid for. It's paid in full by Jesus. It's not cheap. Because why? Because it cannot be earned. Why? Because that is not the kind of relationship God wanted with us. It'd be like this. Would you charge your fiance for the ring you just bought her to get engaged? Why wouldn't you charge her for the ring? Well, the ring wasn't cheap. Why don't you make her pay for it? Well, because it was freely given for love's sake as a, as a token of love. It's not the relationship you want with her. You don't want to have a, okay, now you owe me or you can earn this because then love would automatically be conditional and she could only be engaged if she bought the ring. That's what kind of is with God. He wants a relationship with us that's one based on love and grace and one, it cannot be earned. But God, so God doesn't, he doesn't really owe us salvation. He gives it. He didn't have to do it. But if he wouldn't have done it, we'd been lost forever. God doesn't owe us salvation. He gives it. The the ring becomes, cannot actually, the ring, the engagement ring, cannot become a symbol of marriage and covenant and love unless it's freely given. And, of course, it has to be freely accepted. You don't intimidate. You don't grab your fiancé around the neck and say, you're going to take this. You're going to pay me for this ring, and you're going to take this ring, and you're going to like it, and shut up. That's the way we're going to, you know, that's not, God wants a relationship with us that is freely given. He, he gives it freely, and we accept it and deeply appreciate it. That's grace. Grace is very awesome. It's the, it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But many of us are still holding on to mixing. It's like you hold on to two different things and they're dragging you in opposite directions and it's going to rip you apart. God wants to, Jesus is the way. There's one way. We don't have to insult him by saying, oh, you know, the cross was really a nice gesture and, you know, grace, mercy, the blood. Oh, so cool. But I'm going to add to it just in case I'm going to add to it all my good works. Then God owes you something or you're insulting him because what he did wasn't quite good enough. God wants a relationship with us that's based on the same thing you want when you engage, get engaged to your fiance, when you propose, when you want to enter into marriage. It's something where there's a covenant. Both sides are in agreement. You have, you know, bestowed upon that person the blessing, the invitation to marry you. And this is what God was always about. This is why idolatry and adultery in the Old Testament, you know, were such a big deal when when they were practicing idolatry, worshiping demons. It's like they had other lovers. God calls them the harlot. You know, they went with all these other foreign gods under every green tree. They were worshiping and eating swine's flesh and blah, 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 blah. And God says, hey, what happened to us? What happened to us? He even had one of the prophets, uh, Hosea, marry uh, 
uh, a woman who was an adulteress just to have somebody who could sense and go through what he was going through to pray to understand what it feels like to be rejected and and having to divorce someone you love um god has feelings and he wants this to be grace okay i don't know if that makes sense i hope it does but we're going to go now into this prayer uh, for canceling out the agreements we've made with the mixed gospel, because this is the foundation of every curse. This is where they all start. This is where they all come in, where you don't understand your your covenant relationship with God. You don't understand its grace. You don't understand you've been forgiven. And so you strive and you're tempted to become afraid. You're tempted to fear. Be, you're afraid of sinning. And so sinning, getting rid of sin, being good, all of those things become the focus of your relationship with God which makes God what? All about mad at you for sinning or all about be good so he doesn't get mad at me. Now, I pray that you will get this because if you get this, please, the Holy Spirit will click this in your mind so that he'll open your eyes and remove this spirit of stupor. We bind and forbid that spirit of stupor, that zombieing effect that's put the church to sleep and kept it impotent and caused us to not do the miracles like we're talking in Galatians. What's happened to all this powerful God stuff that we see happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's not there. Why? Because we are not preaching the right gospel. Bottom line. And we put up with it. We, we go to church and we make these passive agreements with, you know, letting somebody else tell you how the gospel should look, how it should sound, what it should mean. You're letting somebody else tell you what the gospel is instead of looking at it yourself. How is that working for you? It's actually bringing us into that place of bondage. You know, you do not submit your spiritual life to any other person except the Holy Spirit first. And then as God leads you into uh, a family, a part, a remnant, the part of the church that loves God, that preaches the right gospel, then you learn, you help, you enable, you, 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 um, support one another. But your responsibility for getting the right word of God is yours in the Holy Spirit. You don't give that to someone else just because they they have a, a garment on or they wear a collar or you think they've gone to a seminary somewhere and they know more than you. That's like submitting yourself to the doctor. The doctor does not know more about your body than you do. You live in that body every day. Now, he may have an understanding and to be able to give a diagnosis for something that's going on. But, and he doesn't care about that body as much as you do because that's your body. That's the only one you get to live in. So don't give away your authority, your submission to people. Give it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit so loves you. He loves your physical body. He wants you well and healthy. He wants these curses broken. And so we understand, you have to understand that the curses come from demonic judgments. They come from Satan, the accuser of the brethren, going up to the, into the high court of heaven and saying, I have a right to sift Peter. I have a right to test Job. Um, you say he's righteous. I don't think so. I can prove to you, God, that I can break him. I can prove to you that Peter's not fit to lead the group. I can prove to you that Job is only serving you because of what you give him. This is the demonic uh, accusations and judgments Satan wants to put upon us. And if he can find fault with us, 
his his case against us then is strengthened in the court of heaven. Then he brings his long list of sins. Then he brings in all the generational curses and all the agreements that your people have already made, all the sins and iniquities they've already done that are not even yet dealt with or confessed, the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Where Leviticus even says in 26, if you will confess your iniquity and the iniquity of your fathers which is with you, Leviticus 26, 39 and following, then I will, you know, restore the covenant. Your, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers, which are with you. So those things keep tumbling down like an avalanche on us. So if you're going to get to the bottom of this thing, let's begin where it counts. Let's begin at the beginning. So I'm going to read to you actually this prayer. It's uh, several paragraphs long and you can pray it. And if I read too fast, you can, we are going to, we're going to put this up on our website, liferecovery.com. Prayer for canceling out the agreements we have made. And our people have made with mixed gospels. Now, every one of us has got this curse. Every one of us. I don't know of hardly any generations truly through the course of time that have not practiced religion, that have not got tangled up in works and law. I believe this is the last days where the revelation of the, of the gospel of the kingdom is coming back into full, complete circle compl- because it began with Jesus. And now we're coming back full circle to the gospel of power, the gospel of authority, the gospel of miracles, the gospel of healing the sick, cleansing the, the gospel of grace, the gospel of relationship, the gospel of love and forgiveness and good news. And you can't do that if you're under the curses of confusion and stupor and blindness and, and, dis, and depression. Here we go. Okay, here's what we pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you right now on behalf of myself and as the authorized representative of all my generational bloodlines to cancel out every agreement we have made knowingly and unknowingly with the liar in mixing the, the law, the, in the mixing of law and grace and works and religion in the rejecting of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man for the restoration of our relationship with God. I cancel out our agreements with using the traditions of men and good works as a way to get to heaven. I confess our perversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, adding to it and mixing it with our own ideas of what must be included in his sacrifice to make it complete. I ask you to forgive us for peddling many counterfeit gospels, all abominations before you, Lord God. I reject the crafting of graven images, the practicing of rituals and religious superstitions that base our righteousness upon our own ability to keep the law as a partial or complete fulfillment of God's commandment. I ask you to forgive us for making salvation something we can or must earn, both of which make you a debtor to us. I ask you to forgive us for substituting programs for the power of your presence and accepting the doctrines of demons as having come from your Holy Spirit. I ask you to forgive us for using the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God for our own gain and as a way to beat up and control the weaker ones who are seeking the counsel and comfort of your, of your truth. Forgive us. I cancel out all practices that bind us to the spirit of man fear or people pleasing in following or preaching a false gospel. I ask you to forgive us for mixing the gospel of Jesus Christ 
with many other things that call themselves the gospel of Jesus Christ and are not. I repent for my own participation in, in these religious practices and the rejection of God's salvation. I repent for believing lies and in adding anything to your message or method of salvation as necessary to be saved. I declare that we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the Lord, and that our salvation is established through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, freely given to whosoever believes. I declare that the confession of that belief, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God, according to Romans 10, 9, and 10, is sufficient to bring us to salvation. I declare there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Now, you can go specifically, and the more specific you are in that prayer as you're praying it, making note, for example, people who have been mixed up in uh, rituals, uh, graven images, uh, traditions of men, church commandments, um, all kinds of things that are just ritualistic religion and not relationship, that we go through it in a rote kind of check it off the list kind of way, that these things are things you can specifically confess. You can confess things like spiritual abuse, where you were controlled by someone else who you had given the power to control you because you believe they were smarter in the things of God than you. Um, you have the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, Paul, uh, John says, we do not need that anyone teach us because we all have the anointing. That's in First uh, John, I think. You know, yes, I can learn things from other people, and that's great because it's easy to learn. If you can glean and, and God uses them to explain and help you understand things, that's called the gift of teaching. That's God gave us that gift. But at the same time, it is the Holy Spirit who is anointed to make it clear to you to help you to understand it. So once we have identified um, these lies and agreements that we've made with the lies, some of them are passive agreements. You sit in church every Sunday and make a passive agreement with everything that comes to your eyes, your head, your mind, from that mouth, unless you say, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, wait a minute. Is that what the Word says? If you and, and, and if you are mixing it all together, you're going to leave that church, I promise you, being confused. You're going to be a little bit shook up, a little concerned. I don't know. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I can lose my salvation, blah, blah, blah. And all this doubt opens the door to fear and breaks the relationship with God. It breaks our trust in God. If you have something the Holy Spirit is convicting you about that you've done, um, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you and respond to it. The Bible says, confess your sins. You know, it says, if you sin, if we, when we, he says, when we sin, he doesn't say, if you sin in John, first John chapter um, one, he says, when you sin, confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. He doesn't, and he says, he actually says there, and don't say you haven't sinned and call God a liar. So God knows you're going to sin. Sin means you actually bought into a lie. And because of that, you made a choice to, to, to come into an agreement with something that was not good for you, that was, sin, that was uh, separating you from God or from others. So repentance means to change your mind. You, you identify these things that the Holy Spirit help you identify. Say, Holy Spirit, show me where I, my family, my bloodline has mixed this gospel of good news with the gospel of everything else, all the counterfeit good works gospels. You might have to repent 
of become uh, of having been raised in a certain religion. Not that it was your choice. I mean, you just you started out there. That doesn't mean you're bad. That just means you started out there. But God in his faithfulness is going to show you. Now, let's go on. Let's get out of this pit. Let's go forward. This is where you started. This is not where you're ending. And therefore, you repent. You change your mind. Say, okay, just because you, you're familiar with it, just because you were raised in it, just because you were baptized in it, doesn't mean it's right. Just because most of the time you're thinking, oh, that's good because you're about six years old and making those decisions. And what do you know at six, right? So we confess it. We repent. We change our minds. And then we declare, we cancel it out. I think it's specifically helpful to say, you know, the devil is such a legalist. So you say, okay, I repent. I cancel out every agreement we've made with, and you can specifically say with um, believing that this and this and this, whatever it be, can save me. I declare that only Jesus Christ can save me. So you cancel out your agreement with the lie, and then you declare with your mouth, establish the truth by declaring it. Um, we come out of agreement with that lie. Then that means Satan no longer has power to use that lie in the court of heaven against us because we have gone on record as canceling it out, the blood of Jesus. I think people are sloppy in their salvation. They, it's like life, okay? When you're born as a baby, think about it. You don't know anything that's going on, really. I mean, you know subconsciously some things, maybe. Maybe you know that you're being, you know, you're in danger, that it's scary, that it's dark, that you're trapped, that you've got a cord wrapped around your neck. Subconsciously, you're, you're, there's things being programmed into your subconscious because of those traumas and terrifying things. But you really don't take hold of your life much when you're between zero and, like, say, four or five. You just live it. You just be... I mean, hopefully it's not terribly dangerous where you can actually be safe enough to live it. But after about five or six, you start to seven, maybe, just gradually you start to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Before that, you didn't know you were here. You were here, but you didn't know it really. Now you know you're here. So like salvation is like that. We're saved. And it's kind of, we're here. Okay, what does that mean? And a lot of times if babies aren't born with a hunger, if they're not thriving, they don't want to nurse, whatever, they are not going to do well. So when you're born again, you're hoping, praying to God, that you've got a real hunger to to eat the word, to, you know, feed off of the word of God so you can grow. But at some point, you're going to stop and say, wait a minute, this thing that I came out of, was that the truth? What is the truth? What does God say? What does God's word mean? And all the rest of your life becomes the refining of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the developing of the understanding of God's intentions for your heart and your life, his love for you, his desire to have a, a, a relationship with you that's based on grace and goodness. And if you love God, you know, in a marriage, going back to the marriage, you know, if you really love that person, you're not going to try to hurt them. You're not going to try to sin against them. You're not going to cheat on them. You're not going to try to rip them off. If you really love them, you're going to look out for them. You're going to put them first. You're going to lay down your life for them. That's what God says. I laid down my life for you. I'd do it again in a heartbeat if I had to. And now trust me, I've got this. And he wants to carry your life because some of us are in such bad spots that only God can get you out of it. Does that make sense? This It's time to, to let go and let God, like they say, relax. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, if you're carrying a heavy burden and you're in a spot, and believe you me, people are in spots. I know they are. I counsel them. I talk to them almost every day about these things. It's just like unbelievable. The tangles, the snares, the treacheries, the deceptions, the divinations, the assaults, the intimidations, the threats that Satan has made against the people of God. So when you're in that spot, which some of you may be, first of all, pray this prayer. Repent, confess, and and do it for your whole generational bloodline, even your children to come, so that you are now set straight on the track, that we are walking in the gospel of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's the power of and demonstration of God unto salvation to do exploits, to know who we are. We are distinct. We are a particular, peculiar people. We are of this world, in this world, but we're really, you know, of, in, whatever. We don't belong to this world. We're different. We can be different. It's okay to be different. It's, if you know who you are and where you're from, then it's perfectly awesome to be different and let them wonder about you instead of saying, you got to be like me. You got to be like me. No, we can't be like you. You need to be like us. We need, we're following Jesus. We know who we are. We're of the kingdom of God. And we're just here now. Our whole perspective is switched around. We're not under the curse. We're not here struggling, grappling to try to get by, get in, get out. We're here to declare the work and the purposes, the freedom of Jesus Christ, to rescue those who are lost, declare the good news of Jesus Christ, and go forward with that anointing and that confidence. We're not here to surrender and submit to the peer pressure of those who don't even know where they're going. We're here to follow Jesus, and in following him, we're here to lead other people. And if that's your heart's desire, I would encourage you that you get a hold of either the, the manual, um, Diagnosing Your Family Tree. It's on the website, liferecovery.com. The prayer is in the back of that manual. The, the other prayers, the setup prayers and the prayers for forgiveness and all those other things, which are very, very important as well are in the backs of most of the other manuals, if not all of them. But the complete set is in Diagnosing Your Family Tree. We will put this up on the website as soon as we can. But we want you to check out that website and be encouraged. Be to know who you are. That you are not, we are not legislated by the law. We're set free from the law through the blood of Jesus Christ. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, of your love. Remember, remind us about the engagement ring. Lord, we don't offer to pay for it. We aren't forced to pay for it. We accept it. We receive the proposal. Will you marry me? And God is basically saying, will you marry me? Yes, we want to be in your family. Yes, we are the bride of Christ. Yes, it's all good. And so, yes, Father, for each one who's in a pit today, God, you know what the pits are. Nothing is impossible and too hard for you. So we give those things over to you. Let the people trust in you, surrender, and, and rejoice in that they can surrender their pit to you and see your awesome um, redemption and revelation through it, Father. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I have an emergency. What is your location? Because there's a war for your soul.